Hey, welcome to The Goods, film podcast by Brian and Dan. How you doing this evening, Brian? I'm okay, Dan. Glad to be back. What are we watching tonight? So, we are watching a film called DOA. It was released in a year that is actually not consistently defined across different uh, sources. It's either 1949 or 1950. Uh, Wikipedia has it as 1950. IMDb has it as 1949. I'm going to give IMDb the nod here and say that its year is 1949. It might be one of those things where it was like released very small in the first year and then the next year it was released wide. So people don't really know how to define it. I'm not really sure. Everything about this movie is confusing. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. This film was directed by Rudolf Matei, who is actually best known as a cinematographer. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about him in a bit. He's had a, he had a pretty interesting career. Starred Edmund O'Brien as protagonist Frank Bigelow and Pamela Britton as Paula Gibson, who is Frank Bigelow's secretary and lover. And we will certainly talk more about them as we get to the plot. But the main reason I chose this film, I had recently heard about it on a podcast, a different podcast I was listening to, and a film critic I really like named Tim Brayton listed it as one of his favorite murder mysteries and just said it was kind of a fun noir plot thriller with a really cool premise. And I thought, you know, the last three weeks have been some combination of Musical, romantic comedy, time travel has been playing a role for about the past month. Let's do something tight, something dark, something classic. Let's get a a noir mystery thriller in here. Palette cleanser. It's only 83 minutes, although even that is not consistent. I've found various cuts ranging from 58 minutes to 80 minutes to 83 minutes. The... One on Tubi that I watched, as well as the length listed on IMDb, is 83 minutes. So I think that is the fullest cut. But as you said, everything about this movie is a little confusing. I watched on Amazon Prime. I think mine also had the 83-minute runtime. So unlike Kate and Leopold, I think we will cover the same ground. Gotcha. This movie is in the public domain, which is pretty cool. It was apparently made by a small studio that didn't have their paperwork in order and they screwed up the filing and now it's in the public domain. You can open up Wikipedia and watch it, although I do not recommend that because, again, I if, unless I'm confused about something, that cut was way shorter, 58 minutes, and you can watch it for free on Tubi or if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it there. And it's a remastered cut. You can watch it on Tubi or not Tubi. (laughs) So I wanted to start by, I call this a film noir. I wanted to talk about what is film noir, because that is not an easy question to pin down. You would think a term that's widely used might have a pretty clear definition. And that is true for many terms in in cinema. (laughs) 
Film noir is not one of those things. I guess I'll tell you what I know about film noir, and then you can tell me what you know okay. about film noir, Sounds Brian. good. Film noir is sometimes called a genre, but I, that's not even a consensus. Is it really a genre, or is it more of like a style, an overarching style? Same way you would call something expressionist or something along those lines. And this style peaked during the 40s and 50s. That's most of the canonical film noirs come from the 40s and 50s. Typically anything from the 1960s or later you call neo-noir because at that point people had collectively realized that that was like a distinct stylistic era. And now we're now paying homage to it and or imitating that style. I would say the thing about film noir is if you've seen a f- few film noirs, it then becomes a you-know-it-if-you-see-it thing. And because of that, it really has had a hard time getting like airtight definitions on what makes something a noir. And so there are a lot of films on the fringes that some people say, is it noir, is it not noir? Um, a similar concept is screwball comedies. It's Once you've seen a few screwball comedies, you know it if you see it. Kind of hard to say exactly what it is, even if there's a lot of things that those types of movies have in common. So for film noir, the most common traits are a striking use of darkness and light, particularly with kind of low key lighting, usually like shadows and a sense of sort of visual imbalance or chaos in a typically urban world. It's usually in a city or a town, not always. Um, And that's the thing with basically any component of noir, as you say, usually it has this, but not always. I think the most noir moments of DOA are this really striking opening segment, which we'll talk about, where he's kind of, we see the, the protagonist, Frank Bigelow, from the back in this kind of dark silhouette lighting as he walks through a police hall. There's also a chase in an industrial building. There's a couple other chases, some outside, some inside, that really have what you think of as the noir aesthetic. So there's definitely some of it in DOA. Yeah. There was a scene towards the end where they're like fighting in a store and you see, like when you're looking at one person, you see the other person's shadow. And when you look at that person, you see the other person's shadow. And it's like a shadow of a dude in a hat that seemed very noir. Noir. Yeah, that's a good call. I hadn't even noted that moment, but that's definitely a good one. Noirs also typically have story and thematic elements that tie them together, too. So there's almost always elements of sort of distrust for corruption inside institutions. The stories very frequently have organized crime, so you kind of have this duality of Oh, there's the cops, there's the government, there's the politicians on one side, and then there's the organized crime, which kind of mirrors that. And when you add all that up, there's there's kind of a nihilist conclusion, which is that if there are these two things that are both evil, then really there's no thing as good or evil. Everything is just morally gray. Yeah, moral relativism. The stories are almost always some sort of crime story. Very frequently a murder mystery that unfolds into something that's a far deeper conspiracy or seediness in the world. 
Uh, but again, this is another one where it's not a hard and fast rule. There doesn't need to be a murder mystery involved. The hero is usually a male hero with some sort of unfulfilled sexual desire. And often one or more women that he encounter will offer either a temptation or perhaps a resolution of that unfulfilled desire. And the kind of the stereotypical figure in noir who does that is the femme fatale. DOA does not really have a femme fatale, at least like a classic example. There's a few women who offer temptation throughout the story, particularly the first half, but there's not like a driving figure, a femme fatale who walked into the the building and led him on this wild goose chase or anything. In fact, the main woman is like a very chaste, classic suburban woman that you would marry and have a home with, not not a femme fatale. Right. But, I mean, they do go out of their way to point out every time there is an attractive woman on screen. <laughs> That's right. It, I'll talk about it and things I didn't like about this movie, but for the first 15 minutes, every time the protagonist sees an attractive woman, a slide whistle goes off. Well, it's, it's, like does... a, it's like the standard wolf whistle sound, but yeah, it's on some kind of instrument, <laughs> like a slide whistle, so it goes... But it's like a different speed and pitch every time. And it happens like six or eight times. Like it's very cartoonish and not something I would associate with my (laughs) understanding of a noir film. Right. In noirs, the endings are rarely happy. There's occasionally cryptic or open-ended endings of some sort or anticlimactic or depressing The classic closing lines that kind of encapsulate this are, Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Obviously from the Roman Polanski film Chinatown. Or, what's this? The stuff that dreams are made of. From the Maltese Falcon. Saying the context for that would be a spoiler of that film. But even with noirs, there's not always... Spoilers aren't always the point. It's more about the energy of what's going on, so... But yeah, that the endings are, are very rarely like the happy resolved endings that we like to think of in Hollywood, you know. And then the last kind of thing that was going to lead me down my next can of worms is that many film noir are based off of or inspired by or in, aligned in some way with a literary genre that is hard-boiled. It's a type of mystery fiction, detective fiction, and one that has kind of its own set of tropes that some align with noir. Many noirs are based off of hard-boiled detective books or their own hard-boiled stories, but uh, it's not a requirement for film noir. So before I talk about what it means to be hard-boiled detective fiction and kind of what I know about that, I wanted to open the floor to you, Brian. What What's your take on film noir? What do you know about it? So... My introduction to what film noir is and the associated tropes was from the show Whose Line Is It Anyway? The (laughs) kind of improv party game show uh, that stars an ensemble of improv actors with Colin Mockery and Ryan Stiles and Wayne Brady. And one of the games that they would play was putting on film noir scenes and one person would be the narrator 
and then the other people would have to act out things as he narrated them. And that's pretty much the window through which I picked up the common features of the genre. And usually it would be, you know, a detective is sitting in his office and you get the narration. It was a day like any other until she walked into my life. And then a, a woman comes in and will have a sob story. That's the bullet point you've got in your notes, a sob story and a case that she's going to need to put this detective on to. And then there's lots of twists and turns as he's unraveling the case. And there's usually sexual tension with this woman. And that was basically my understanding. Although, as we have been preparing for this episode, and I've been looking through your thoughts, I realize time and again that I have seen a few more noir movies. In my junior year in college, I took a detective fiction course. Like within the English department, it was specifically focused on detective stories. Like beginning with the C. Auguste Dupin stories by Poe and just all, all through the history of the genre. And so some of that we focused on hard-boiled. And so we did read stuff by Dashiell Hammett. And let's see, I know one of them was Big Sleep. One of them was Maltese Falcon. Who's the, who's the other author? Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler, yes. Those two. Uh, read at least one book from each and watched one movie adaptation from each. I think we wa read and watched Big Sleep and Maltese Falcon. Uh, for a different class, I watched Chinatown. And of course, I've also seen Roger Rabbit, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a noir story. I completely agree. Great example of a noir. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. It's essentially Chinatown with cartoon characters stuck into it. Oh, yeah. Roger Rabbit is great. It's a movie that I've loved more the older I've gotten. I've seen it about three times now. And yeah, it's great. Um, a lot of the things that you described there, tropes you kind of understood about noir, point to how much it's tied to hard-boiled detective fiction. And yeah, a, a lot of the tropes come directly from that to noir. So hard-boiled, as you mentioned, is a detective genre that kind of came up in the pre-World War II, but kind of post-Depression, or right around then time and it was very much a reaction to the orderly law trusting almost chamber type mysteries where everybody gets in a parlor and the detective announces who it is and that person is arrested and people go on with their lives types of mysteries that are highlighted by Agatha Christie of course but plenty of other writers which I gotta say I, I enjoy those kinds of <laughs> Like those are usually a little more tightly plotted and coherently plotted than hard boiled are. So I'm not. It's not a uh, mark against those. For the fact that they are maybe a little bit uh, idealistic in how one could solve a mystery. But anyways, in in hard boiled, the detective is almost always a private eye. It's important he's a private eye because he's jaded. He's disillusioned. He's witnessed violence and corruption. And in politics and in police, he's often a former policeman or someone who's been wronged by policemen. And as you said, the, the stereotypical hard-boiled story is he's got a tiny, dusty little office and the femme fatale walks in. It was a day like any other. She walks in and changes everything. 
it's usually starts with either an affair or a murder. And for whatever reason, nobody else is willing to look into it. So he's the one man who can do it. And you usually figure out like, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the way or a third of the way into the story that everything that she was saying was a lie up front. And that gets to another striking point of hard boiled stories is that it's all about the motion of the plot. It's all about this person betrays that person who is really lying for this person who has this secret name, who is having an affair with this person. And it just piles on and on and on each other. And it usually escalates in scope. There's conspiracies. There's very often organized crime and mafia and crooked cops. Right. It always goes straight to the top. It never only goes one rung up. (laughs) Exactly. It's never, oh, this person was dead. Oh, well, it was this person that did it and they move on. It always goes to the top. So another thing about Hard Boiled is unlike the Agatha Christie type mysteries where we we really admire the detectives, usually heroes, people who are cleverer than us, people that maybe we don't want to be, but we would certainly want to be the one investigating our own mysteries. The Hard Boiled detective is usually a fuck up in some way has flaws one uh class i took the teacher made the point that hard-boiled writers really loved the word case and it was a great word because the they were solving cases but the detectives were head cases they were cases themselves and so it kind of all wrapped in together and you put the book on your bookcase (laughs) yeah if you want a coherent straightforward plot don't go to hard-boiled as mentioned it's gonna be convoluted and you gotta be braced for that that's what it's gonna be and you kind of gotta accept that yeah every noir story i've consumed it always makes me feel dumb (laughs) like (laughs) wait a minute back it up replay it maybe i'll understand it more the second time I think I've finally got a handle on Roger Rabbit. Uh, other ones have eluded me so far. I would say there's a, in that class that I was mentioning, I think we talked about, there's like a quote from Raymond Chandler, who is probably the most famous author of uh, Hard Boiled, where he, someone asked him about a character's motivation and he like joked, you think I have any idea what that character was thinking at that point? I couldn't even tell you what the plot of this book was so i don't think it's much of a secret so yeah that's kind of an overview of i don't know just the background i find it interesting to think about these things and talk about these things so it was a little bit of a a tangent but it sets the stage for doa yeah it's good to take a look into a genre that we haven't yet Uh, not just on this podcast but i have not pursued this genre in any great depth So good to talk about it. One other way I have been exposed is in junior year of college, I also did a film production independent study where me and a group of other students worked together on a short film that I wrote. We kind of came up with the story as a group and the angle was that it was going to be a noir story, but I like started it as a noir story and couldn't couldn't keep up with it. So 
it just kind of gradually became Indiana Jones. Like <laughs> that classic it has, film noir. It has the noir setup, but then like as I went along, I decided that I needed pirates and maybe also magic <laughs> to keep my interest, and so it kind of deviated from the norm a little bit. Uh, I would watch that the but, film noir that turns into wizards and pirates. Right. I'm in. My my proudest accomplishment though is that I took the names Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe and kind of combined them, and the detective protagonist is named Willis Slade. Oh, that's a good name. I think that's a Willis pretty, Slade. Pretty solid yeah. noir name. I would watch a movie about Willis Slade trying to unravel the secrets of the. It was the Silver Skull. The pirate Wizards. Yes, oh, the was, Silver Skull. Yeah, okay. Willis Slade and the Silver Skull. That's good. Very cool. I will say noirs tend to have a pretty uh, rock-solid reputation. People always want to watch them. They're just fun. They're grimy. You get to dig into the seedy side of life. You get to have your perceptions twisted this way and that. So I enjoy watching them. I mean, I, I have a satiable appetite for them. I don't need to watch one every week. I can be fine watching a couple a year. It is it's a fun style. Shall we dive into DOA? Yes, let's. So as mentioned, DOA 1949 was directed by Rudolf Matei. And yeah, he is a very famous cinematographer. He he was the DP for uh some of the legendary masterpieces of silent film. And some of the early talkies, too. His two most famous works of cinematography are Vampire, V-A-M-P-Y-R, a 1932 horror classic directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. And perhaps most famously of all, The Passion of Joan of Arc frequently shows up on, like, if you're ever looking at snooty best ever movie lists... The Passion of Joan of Arc will be there. I've mentioned the film critic Tim Brayton. He thinks this is the greatest movie of all time. I've mentioned there's like an online list. They shoot pictures, don't they? Which like aggregates top lists. And Joan, Passion of Joan of Arc, the French film, is very typically in the the top 10. It is in the top 10 of that list. So so yeah, he, he's known for having a strong visual sense for telling stories with the visuals. But then in 1947, he made a career pivot and moved towards directing. And he was cinematographer for some of the movies he directed, but not all of them. And including DOA, he was not the cinematographer, although apparently he helped out quite a bit with it from what I read. But he was the director for uh, for DOA. Uh, DOA is nowadays considered a classic of noir. At the time... It was received pretty medium. Uh, the reviews were not all that great. And even today, everybody kind of acknowledges it doesn't really fit into all of the film noir molds exactly. For example, the hero is not a hard-boiled detective, at least at first. He's an accountant who gets wrapped up in something. But yeah, it's it's now, if you ever look on, if you want to see a list of 10 or 20 film noirs, you'll often see... DOA listed as one of those, even if it's not quite in the same breath as films like The Maltese Falcon. It's it's still, I think, up there. And, and I thought it would be a slight curveball if we were going to go film noir. Not not Maltese Falcon, but uh, still up there. 
yeah, I had not heard of this one before, so glad you brought it to my attention. Always good to know about another public domain movie. Yeah, I thought of you. I didn't even know that when I picked it at first, and then I read that, and I was like, oh, perfect for Count Gauntly. Maybe you can weave it into, you can do a, fil- a Count Gauntly noir episode. That's true. Another project that I've thought would be good is one that I've tentatively called Noircalepsy. Okay. And it's sort of a Walter Mitty story where the protagonist keeps lapsing into a daydream that's in noir style. <laughs> um, have you ever seen the Community episode where Professor Chang sort of does that? I've seen every Community episode, so it would follow that I've probably seen that one. But <laughs> as with every time I binge a TV show, I tend to forget specifics. That's all right. Anything when you get too much Chang, it, it tends to overwhelm the episode. So. <laughs> a little goes a long way. Yeah. One thing, though, I was thinking about this the other day, totally unrelated to our podcast, so I probably shouldn't even stick it in here, but uh, we have recorded a proto-podcast on Community and on Avatar The Last Airbender, so... If you're looking, do we have for, one about community? If you're looking for those things here at the goods, you won't find them, but we can steer you <laughs> to similar coverage that we have done in years past. Yeah, those are two sh- shows I absolutely love. The first season of Community hit me at a time when I needed that exact show, and for that reason, that show and that season are high up in my pantheon. But yeah. Uh, go check out our Earn This podcast where we did about 20 episodes, a lot of them about beer, but some of them also about TV and movies on earnthis.net. So shall I jump into the story of DOA? Go for it. <laughs> I know that's a big ask, but <laughs> yeah, it's, this is on you. I, I read your summary and I read the Wikipedia summary a few times i will say when i watched this it was pretty late last night and i was also watching cnn and i i've also right now for my job been selling equipment on facebook marketplace and i've never done that before and the phone has just been off the hook interacting with all manner of strange people (laughs) i feel like this has promise i want to hear more about this at some point But yeah, so I can forgive you for uh, maybe not grasping every single detail. But as we'll get to, I don't know if you necessarily need to. It's about the motion of the plot, you know. So this movie opens with, I kind of alluded to this earlier, a dark silhouette of a man walking down a police hallway. And the camera is tracking right along with him. It kind of evokes a light at the end of the tunnel type situation where he's kind of walking towards his ultimate fate. And then this man enters the homicide division. He says he wants to report a murder that happened in San Francisco the night before. And this detective says, who was murdered? And the man says, I was. Such a dramatic moment. The detective recognizes the man's name, Frank Bigelow, and he seems to be expecting him. So that's another wrinkle in this mystery. Why is the homicide division expecting Frank Bigelow, a man who claims to have already been murdered, to appear in a police station. So they they ask Frank to tell a story, and he, he starts to do so. 
he starts by jumping back a few days. It's the start of the flashback. It's going to all lead up to where we are now. So in the past, I don't know if it's, it's probably two days earlier, maybe three days earlier. Frank is working as an accountant. He owns this little business. I think it's an accountant. It's something along the lines of that. He's planning an impromptu vacation to San Francisco. He's about to leave. He's kind of wrapping up his business. And his secretary, Paula, insists that she wants to go with him to San Francisco. Complaining about the fact that he's doing it so abruptly. He's not telling her anything about the trip. And it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that that they're lovers, not just business associates. And we can infer that he is perhaps running out of town for a bit because he kind of fears settling down with her, that things are becoming too serious, that he's starting to feel sort of trapped. And they go and they get this drink. They have this kind of weird, gender-coded, stereotypical conversation, and he runs off to San Francisco. I want to know how common it was for people to have relationships with their secretaries. That seems like an especially 50s thing, but I wonder if it's just a trapping of fiction or if that's really how it was in the the Mad Men world. I also got to say, if they were going to depict this woman as being like uptight and cramping his style and making him feel like he was no longer an exciting man, they didn't do a good job of it. The woman who plays her was named Pamela Britton, and she is, like, Hollywood gorgeous. Yeah, she's cute. And she's young, and she's, like, she's not really trapping him at all. She's, like, asking him what he's doing, but, like, is like, oh, you go have some fun. That's fine. It's like, I don't know. Why does he need to escape from that? It seemed like they were kind of trying to do, like, the money penny thing where, you know, she's into James Bond, but James Bond is always off doing his own thing. Although... This this whole trip to San Francisco is very weird to me because I assumed he was lying about going on vacation and he had some other thing that he was going to do. But no, he really does just go to San Francisco, although it's not really clear why he does that. I, I agree. Yeah. To me, a vacation means you're going to see something or do something, not just to be somewhere. And I agree. He really just, he goes and he stays at a hotel. And at the hotel, like the first part of the trip, it's like he gets in and then he just sits in his room and he's like staring at the wall until he gets <laughs> invited to the room across the hall, just seemingly by chance. So like if that hadn't happened, what was this vacation going to consist of? I'm with you. I thought he was hiding something that was going to end up being an important reason for why he was murdered spoiler was not and it's bizarre and my take was he was going to do like touristy shit and just drink a lot of alcohol i don't know but it it's not very clear yeah it's like it's like he's going on fleet week but he's not a sailor (laughs) he's just gonna go get drunk in san francisco but he does arrive there he checks into his hotel room and he notices many beautiful women and people celebrating so i think they call market week or something And this is when we get all those slide whistles. Like the vast majority of them are in this five minute window here as he's like checking in and walking to his hotel room and he looks at all the beautiful women and he gives them all this goofy smile that kind of betrays the fact that this is, I guess, supposed to be this tough guy who can't be clamped down by no woman. 
And I don't know. That part was a little odd for me. He gets to his hotel room and Paula immediately gives him a call. And that's going to be a recurring thing here. And to the point I actually kind of started to get why Frank would feel a little bit uh, clamped down by her. She's calling him like three times a day while he's out here. She's calling him as much as the McDonald brothers call Ray Kroc. Oh, man. Good pullback. Listeners, go listen to our second episode, The Founder. But yeah, I, I agree. This call, she reveals that a man named Eugene Phillips has been trying desperately to get in touch with him, called several times. But when Frank hears this, he kind of hand waves it. He's on vacation. He's not interested in getting in touch. And part of the reason as this is going on, all these beautiful women are kind of outside the hallway, roaming around. There's clearly something going on in the room across from his hotel. So he gets off the line. He's not interested in Eugene Phillips. He almost immediately gets sucked into that hopping party across the hall because he hears they're their ordering bourbon and scotch. I do like the way the guy who invites him across the hall laughs to indicate his drunkenness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> come on, come to the party. <laughs> and so he goes there and they're just all having a good time. They're talking about how it's, they kind of give some backstory for it. It's not really important. It's just these young, hip people having a good time. And Frank dives right in. Uh, there's this one woman he dances with. And he, he gets a drink himself. And they're all talking. And they, oh, let's go out. Let's go have a fun night on the town. Oh, come on, Frank. You got to come with us. And so he, he gets roped in. This is basically what he wanted this vacation to be. It, it seems like this sort of indulgent escape away from the oppressive Paula. It does seem to be shaping up well. Yeah. Uh, basically, if you were to say you were to just, just go by yourself somewhere, what would you want to happen to a hotel with no real plan for the week? This is pretty close to the ideal situation. So they go out to this club and they call it a jive club when they get there. It's this got this really bouncing jazz band playing this intense jazz. And I read that this is considered a notable early depiction of what would eventually be known as the beatnik culture. Kind of all, yeah, man, feel the groove, feel the beat, dig it. It's kind of weird because they're all, I think of beatniks as being kind of hippie-ish and I don't know. Yeah, and they're scruffy. All kind of all dressed up, they're all dressed up nice in that 1940s way where everybody always is ready for a fancy night out. At least that's the way they look. But um, Right, in this movie, they're a little more polished than you might expect a beatnik to look. Right. At this point, this is like kind of when I was peak vibing with this movie because I'm starting to get some thematic tension on this guy, Frank, his uh, his tension between settling down back home and then kind of living this indulgent life out here. The jazz band, it's all sweaty. It's all drinking and wildness and fun. And the, the depiction of the jazz is pretty cool. I, I dug it. But interestingly, Frank is not really feeling the rhythm of this band. He he escapes. He gets bumped into. The woman he'd been dancing with is kind of blackout drunk at this point. She's kind of stumbling around, can't form a sentence. He escapes from the, the show to this bar. And at the bar, he kind of eyes, ah, right away, there's this other beautiful woman across the bar. And he kind of, he orders a drink, kind of eyes her, gets the lowdown on her from the bartender. And he... he kind of slinks over there, introduces himself, and the drink that he had ordered gets swapped out by this man 
who's wearing a, a scarf, kind of this distinct jacket. But we don't see his face. So he grabs Frank's drink and replaces it with another one. And when Frank takes a sip, he doesn't think it's his drink. Oh, what's going on here? And very suspicious here at this point. Yeah, you don't see this guy's face. He's got a like a spy versus spy hat pulled down over his eyes and a Doctor Who scarf pulled up over his mouth. And he looks like a mix between like Secret Squirrel and the Invisible Man or something. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. And, you know, we immediately suspect something might be up with this. Frank, you know, he he gets the number of this woman. This woman's like, call me later. I got another club I need to go to. Frank gets back to his hotel. He's had a couple drinks. He's feeling good. He got the phone number. He gives this woman a call, a booty call. And just as he's about to make that call, he sees some flowers on his dresser that had been brought up by room service or whoever and it's from paula his secretary and she just wanted to let him know how much she loves him when he sees this he decides not to make this booty call he goes to bed and that's kind of his evening the next morning he wakes up he makes his grimaces he's not feeling well you can tell he's off he call he orders room service and they bring up this drink i don't know what this drink was it was like either what does he call it? Tail of the dog or whatever? Hair of the dog when you need a drink the next morning after you've been drinking the night before? Or maybe it was coffee or something. I don't know. But he takes a look at it. He basically gags. He says, take it away from me. I'm feeling sick. He heads into town and heads to a doctor's office. Well, since you brought up that drink that they bring him on the tray, this is a black and white movie, as you may expect a noir movie to be. But I was really curious what color this thing was. Because <laughs> it looked like it might have been like a Bloody Mary. Like maybe it was red. But for some reason, yeah, I was imagining okay. it purple. <laughs> That's a good point. I don't know. I was thinking maybe like it's kind of the equivalent of a mimosa now. Okay. I, maybe. After he refuses that drink, he heads out to San Francisco. And as soon as he's out there, he, he goes to a, a doctor's office and... First, the doctor says, oh, you're okay. But then they look at his blood work and they come out and say, you have luminous toxin in your blood. This is a fatal poison with no antidote and you are certain to die within days. Well, as anyone who would get this news would be expected to, Frank is kind of in disbelief and shock. He rushes, he gets a second opinion, and that second opinion confirms this diagnosis. Frank is going to die he's been poisoned now if you're like me when you hear this you think now is luminous poison a real thing i'm pretty sure <laughs> luminous uh, excuse me luminous toxin i'm pretty sure luminous toxin is not a real thing but just just wait because <laughs> the, this film is very certain that luminous toxin is a real thing yeah we do get one moment where they turn out the lights and the luminous toxin glows in the dark. That's why it's called that. I'm with you. I'd be suspicious that this is a real thing if someone told me that. I, I don't think a second opinion would be enough for me at that point. So that second doctor that he got the second opinion from calls the Homicide Bureau to report the murder. And I guess at this point, we've resolved one mystery. Why does the Homicide Bureau expect Frank? Well, it's because this doctor called him. So that's one of the opening mysteries solved. And in fact, just looking at the opening scene, we kind of have 
Both mysteries solved. He ingested poison, that's why he's there. And the reason they're expecting him is because a doctor called the homicide office saying, hey, this guy's going to die, he was probably murdered. At this point, Frank enters a panic. He returns back to his hotel, and he gets yet another call from Paula, who says that, hey, remember that Eugene Phillips guy I was telling you about? Oh, he's dead now. Don't worry about trying to reach him. He's dead. What a relief for you. This guy who's going to pester you, you know, he passed away. She doesn't have all the info. She doesn't know that Frank is on his his uh, metaphorical deathbed. And Frank, who is now becomes determined he's going to solve this own murder. Who poisoned him and why? Before his time runs out, he heads to L.A. where this Eugene Phillips, where his office was located. Because he infers that perhaps the fact that Eugene Phillips recently died the same time... He was frantically trying to reach Frank, and Frank is now going to die, are perhaps all related. And it's a, it's a too curious to be coincidence passing for Eugene. I want to say that this is a kind of turning point for the film. We kind of had one tone, one storytelling pace prior to this. Things are about to get a little weird, a little intense on the plotting front, in kind of what you would consider a more hard-boiled way, where there's lots of characters and backstabbings and betrayals and things rise to conspiracies and there's affairs that you don't know about and it becomes all convoluted certainly there's a there's a high pace of revelations you get a lot of characters who are suddenly introduced and there's like a moment where you understand the relationship between the characters one way and then almost instantly it's like but wait you are having an affair or you're <laughs> under an alias. Yeah. You're trying to kill me. Oh, but wait, that guy's trying to kill you. So you weren't really trying to kill me in the first place. That said, I think we can unspool this. I think we can get to the heart of it to the extent that there is a heart of it. So he's now at Philip's office. And at this point, it kind of becomes... Frank trying to solve Eugene Phillips' murder as much as his own. And basically, Eugene Phillips becomes a proxy for himself. If he can figure out why Phillips was murdered, he can figure out why he was poisoned and murdered. So he goes to Phillips' office, and there he meets two people. He meets the secretary, Miss Foster, and he meets the comptroller, Mr. Halliday. And both of them deny knowing who Frank is, why Phillips would have any interest in reaching Frank. And Frank learns from them that Phillips died of an apparent suicide from jumping off of a balcony, which is setting off alarm bells for, for Frank, who is maybe perhaps a bit suspicious about the suicide. Frank goes to meet Phillips' widow and brother. Phillips' brother is named Stanley Phillips. So we have Eugene Phillips, the man who was murdered, we also have Stanley Phillips' brother. We also have his widow. It's a whole roster of characters that will continue to grow. Stanley and Phillips' wife, Phillips' widow, admit that Phillips had recently been caught up in trouble with the law. In fact, he was arrested a couple days earlier, was out on bail, but was staring down a real bad sentence. And Phillips' crime had been that he had sold iridium to some mafia guy named Majak. So this Majak is like the 
the big mystery villain here at this point. Now, I was curious about, like, I kind of know what Iridium is, but we don't know why he wants it. We don't know what they're going to use it for. I guess the significance is that this Iridium was hot, right? It was stolen. It was obtained under questionable pretenses. It's the MacGuffin here. We don't learn why it matters that it's Iridium. The thing that I thought was it's going to go out to foreign nations and make nukes and we're all going to be scared. Right, that it would have something to do with radiation. That was my expectation as well. But we don't learn much more about it. We, they just say the Iridium a few times. Yeah. And I don't even know if it... I, don't, I know that there's like Iridium left over from when the asteroid killed the dinosaurs or something, but I don't know if it's actually radioactive. It kind of sounds like uranium. I don't really know. <laughs> They they make it sound sinister. I wanted to know more about the Iridium. I kind of wanted it to become like a Superman story. This is where, if I was writing it, the pirates would come in. <laughs> the pirate point. It's a, it's an important moment of any noir plot. This is where Brian would get bored of the, the actual story and introduce the magic pirates. <laughs> exactly. Frank gets yet another call from Paula. And it just is, as I'm talking through this, it's occurring to me how frequently this is occurring. This is maybe like the seventh call that he's gotten from Paula at this point in the movie. And she says that, oh, hey, guess what? I just happened to find a mention of Phillips in a, how do you say this word? Notarial record. So Frank was the notary. In in other words, he didn't actually serve as the accountant to a client he he merely signed a document attesting to its validity for a bill of sale for Iridium between Phillips and a man named George Reynolds. Now, this is notable because it is not Majak. It's not the mafia guy. But because this George Reynolds is apparently an up-and-up businessman at first glance, it's not Majak, then that is important evidence that... Phillips was not dealing with the mafia and the fact that Phillips was in fact calling Frank to try and get evidence of this is proof that Phillips knew that that Frank might have proof that he was not a criminal and of course Phillips committed suicide so there's kind of crossing motives here Phillips widow is very surprised and distraught at this news because the evidence would have meant that Phillips wasn't guilty. Right. So so Frank can clear Phillips's name. Yes. And he's kind of the last remaining witness, and that's why people are after him. And the bizarre thing is, why would have Phillips committed suicide if he knew that was there? And I think the obvious conclusion here is that it was not a suicide, just as Frank suspected it was, in fact, not a suicide earlier on. So Frank is now kind of back to investigating. He... He's basically a detective at this point. He he goes sniffing back around Philip's office and he kind of has this encounter with Miss Foster, the secretary, and manages to extract from her that Phillips had recently rekindled an affair with a woman. And this woman was named Marla Rakubian. She's a model. So Frank gets the address for, for Marla Rakubian, which apparently Miss Foster has and tracks her down at her address, and he bursts through the door. So now we're at the the mistress of Phillips, and when we get there, we learn that she's 
planning on flying the coop. She's going to go to Buenos Aires. Frank finds her, uh, her plane tickets out. And Frank discovers that she has a picture of Frank Reynolds, the man that Phillips had originally sold the Iridium to. And from this, Frank pieces together that Rakubian's affair with Phillips was not a real affair. It was false. She kind of went into it to try and manipulate and get info from Phillips on behalf of Reynolds, who is the man that he assumes that she really loves. Frank grabs this portrait, and there's a little bit of a scuffle. The woman brings out a gun. Frank manages to steal it from her and the picture of Frank Reynolds. But the picture has the name Ray on it. So at this point, I've already, I've kind of lost my pulse on the story. How does Frank know that the portrait is of Reynolds? Maybe Reynolds was there when they notarized the deal. Maybe, I didn't see, I don't think Reynolds' name was on there. Ray was on there. You kind of got to start hand-waving some of these details away and just go with it. But that's kind of where we are at this point. The the gist, though, is that his name is not really George Reynolds. He is really Raymond Rakubian, which is an incredible name, but I still (laughs) hate them for just introducing a pseudonym because we're already keeping track of a lot of names in this story and then just one turns out to be fake exactly yeah the way he determines that is he goes to a photo studio where this photo that he stole was taken and after bribing the people there he exactly he learns that george reynolds is really raymond rakubian we don't know exactly what to make of him having the same last name as marla at this point in fact, I don't know if we ever get clarity. Was Were they related or was it a husband-wife? I think they were related, like cousins or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> said it falsely. I, they're some, they have some link to each other. Yeah. We do get to hear a character yell, Rakubian, which made the whole movie worthwhile in my mind. It's a good shoutable name. <laughs> um, as he's leaving the picture studio, he gets, starts getting shot at. Some unseen gunman is trying to kill Frank. And this leads to a kind of a chase scene in some sort of industrial building. It's one of the better set pieces of the film. This gunman is firing at Frank from who knows what angle. Frank finds some evidence of where the guy was. But then he notices someone running out the door. So he can't figure out who it was. Was it the same person who was trying to poison him? Presumably. Will the plot ever coherently answer exactly that question? I guess we'll see, but I spoiler alert, no, I would say. He escapes this industrial building. He hops in his rented Studebaker Commander. It's one of those great 1940s cars. It's got the curved bullet looked about it. I, I love this car. I loved every time he was driving in this car. And he, he drives back to his hotel, puts his gun away. I don't know why he put his gun away. And he walks into his hotel room. Where, lo and behold, somebody's waiting for him. It's a group of thugs who were apparently tipped off by Marla. They, they've been waiting for him. They're ready for him. One of these thugs is a guy named Chester. Chester is an interesting point on this film. I went down the path of... There's like a uh, archive of IMDB forum comments. And I would say about half of them for this film are arguing about Chester. 
And whether he is good or, as most people seem to be thinking, he is bad and unwatchable in this movie and a drain on the film. I disagree. I think Chester rules. He was the most fun I had in this movie, at least in its second half. He's this sort of psychopathic henchman. He's giving off serious sadistic vibes that kind of border into the sexual, like homoerotic. He keeps talking about Frank's belly and how he's going to stab him. I don't know. It's kind of a weird, and he's got these bug eyes. Yeah, he's he's got like Brad Pitt as Johnny Goins, <laughs> crazy eyes, and he talks in the third person like Elmo. He's like, oh, Chester's going to mess you up. <laughs> So yeah, Chester and these thugs abduct Frank and bring him to Majak. So now after all this, he's, he's now encountered the mafioso boss of this all named Majak, who's the guy who got the Iridium, which Phillips had been arrested for. And so maybe we're finally at the heart of it, but no. Majak shares that Raymond Rakubian, aka George Reynolds, who I assume you are keeping track of all of this, listeners, is the one that originally did business with eugene phillips who was recently killed so we got multiple phillips now multiple rakubians yeah and frank at this point is thinking that raymond rakubian is the one who poisoned him and shot at him but it turns out that raymond rakubian is dead and has been dead for a while for months now majak and his team and the rakubians were not the people after frank at all they just happened to be third parties in this criminal enterprise but they weren't trying to poison Frank. They didn't go after him. They didn't target him. But because Frank has kind of gone down this rabbit hole, kind of followed these threads, he's uncovered a lot of info, a lot of dangerous criminal info, and he's a liability. So Majak turns Frank over to Chester, and Chester is going to dispose of Frank. Chester takes Frank away. I don't know why Chester didn't just kill him at that moment, if that was Chester's job. But Chester brings Frank away, bringing him in a car, and during this whole drive, he keeps muttering about getting Frank in the belly. Loves the word belly. They're kind of going down the road, and Frank manages to make this dramatic escape out of the car. He pulls into a store. This is the scene you were talking about earlier, where they're kind of watching the shadows of each other as they're trying to chase each other. It's like it's like a Jurassic Park Raptors in the Kitchen type thing, where they're like seeing each other around corners. Exactly, yeah. At this point, the police see what's going on. They shoot Chester, who's kind of causing this chaos, and Frank manages to escape scot-free here. He heads back towards his hotel, and he bumps into Paula. So it turns out Paula, his secretary, who's been calling him every 45 minutes, it has come to L.A. to find him because he was acting weird on the last phone call. And they have a romantic embrace Frank finally admits his love. This is kind of their their moment of true admission of love and romance. Although it's very odd, Frank talks about how much he loves her, and he talks a little bit about what's going on, but doesn't admit that he's about to die. Which, if I were Paula, like afterwards, I would be furious about. You just had this really like earnest, sentimental moment with your your boss and your lover, and he didn't share like the single most important thing about the situation. I don't know. I will say at this point. For some reason, I kept thinking he was going to find a way to fix the situation with the poison. Somehow at the end of the story, he's not going to die. <laughs> but we'll see about that. <laughs> Frank goes back to Philip's office because now he's ruled out the mafia element. 
and it was it must have been someone in the Phillips office. And so he he approaches Miss Foster, the secretary, and I think at this point, this I gotta admit, this was the next moment where I just kind of lost track of the pulse of this plot. I think he thinks that Phillips' brother Stanley is in the midst of an affair with Miss Foster, the secretary, and they intentionally sent him on a wild goose chase. Because of this, Frank now thinks that they were the ones who initially poisoned him. And luckily, this only lasts for about 30 seconds before his mind is changed again, because there's no reason that that makes any sense whatsoever. But I don't know, just one more kind of twist. We're getting towards the conclusion of this. As I mentioned, for about the span of one film minute, Frank believes that Stanley and Miss Foster are responsible, but Stanley is there, and he's got two important updates. One, he learned that Philip's widow, the very sympathetic woman who Frank had met much earlier, she had long been having an affair with the comptroller, Mr. Halliday, and Phillips had just received evidence of this, and so we have suspicion to think might be related for everything that was going on. And two, Stanley, the brother of the guy who died, just confronted Halliday and Philip's widow about it. And he's feeling sick. And Frank immediately recognizes that, hey, the reason you're feeling sick is because you've ingested some of this luminous toxin. And you need to go get your stomach pumped so you don't die the way that I'm going to die in about a day at this point. And we think that now the... The main perpetrator of all of this is Philip's widow. So Frank goes over to her. That that house approaches her. She admits to the affair. She admits that Mr. Halliday killed Eugene in a confrontation and threw him off the balcony. And they had planned to stage it as a suicide based on his his criminal troubles, his, his troubles with the law. But the problem with, with all of this is that Frank was the one person with evidence who could clear Phillips and expose the murder and the affair. And so Frank also had to go down too. And then I'm not exactly clear what happens at this point, but Frank leaves, goes somewhere else and Halliday is there. And I don't know where this is, but Halliday at this point, the comptroller, one of the first people we met in this kind of second half of the film is wearing the scarf and the jacket of the man who slipped the poison to to Frank earlier. Yeah, he's got the sneaky costume on. It's him. He's the bad guy. That's big reveal. They have one final chase scene. I can't remember, and it was not quite clear to me which one was chasing which one. I think Frank might have been going after Halliday, but... Well, he shoots He shoots Halliday, right? Does he actually kill Halliday? I can't remember. I think he does. They, they corner each other, and Frank kills Halliday. Okay. I remember them firing shots... Yeah, that's kind of an important point there. Whether or not he kills Halliday, it cuts back to Frank at the police station, having revealed the Byzantine path that brought him here, and he mutters his final word, Paula, the name of the secretary that he's finally realized he has feelings for. And then the detective says, oh, we have to mark this death as D-O-A. I think it's the final line of the film. I love it when they say the thing, when they say the title. That's a good moment of any movie. Yeah. It gets like, me paying attention. Like Peter Griffin. Uh-huh, they said it. They said it. <laughs> I've always wanted a YouTube channel or a Reddit subreddit 
where it's just clips of them saying the thing where they say the title of the movie or the show I, I think I've seen a I think I've seen a supercut like that. Uh, we well, we can cook we can find something for <laughs> the media section. Do you have a favorite example of them saying the thing, saying the title? Ooh, I might need to think about that for next week. <laughs> Our question of the week. I have a good answer. I have an answer, and it's a good one. And I I want to find it and send it to you because I think it's in the pantheon at least. All right. It's the movie Face Off, where I don't even remember whether it's Nick cage is that is it nick cage oh it's when he makes it's when he makes the weird gesture right yeah he says i'm gonna take my face off it's i haven't even seen the movie but i've seen that clip maybe 20 times and it's a great one and he does this thing with his hand where he's got it like up to his head and then he just (laughs) brings it forward to just really show you what he's gonna do with his face according to wikipedia uh, bigelow treks halliday to the phillips company halliday is wearing the distinctive coat and scarf Halliday draws a gun and fires first, but Bigelow fatally shoots him. Okay, so Halliday is killed. In one of the cuts, that happens. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. But that r- wraps the 1949 film DOA. And maybe that was too in-depth a recap. I just kind of got lost into the labyrinth of it, and I felt like I needed to to follow those threads. But thank you for bearing with me there. I think it was thorough enough that clever listeners will be able to parse through it. <laughs> I don't think I would qualify as a clever listener at that point because I didn't exactly follow all of that, but here we are. So, oh, uh, any thoughts before we move on to the good things? Yes. So at the very end of the movie, after they stamp the certificate DOA, we get this little end tag that says, luminous toxin is a real thing basically oh i didn't i didn't see that did did your cut have that it might have but i shut it off at least mine had across the screen it's like it is too a real thing <laughs> it, 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 i don't know it was like fun fact luminous toxin exists that's kind of weird and i think it's still specious <laughs> i want to see i want to see at least one or two other movies with luminous toxin before i really believe it any other thoughts before we jump into our good things? Yeah, just one last thing is that I really, for some reason, thought he was going to figure a way out of this. <laughs> Title of the movie aside, I don't think I would spend my last 48 hours this way if I knew that death was imminent. I mean, I guess it's good to bring the person to justice, but then, like, if Halliday is out of the picture and he's not going around poisoning anybody anymore, don't don't use your last two hours sitting in a police station telling a movie to somebody go and like sit on a beach somewhere or something yeah and if you've realized you love this woman go spend the time with her right tell her the truth pour your soul to her anyways i I agree and that will be in my my not so good things to some extent but let's talk about the good things first so i have a, a pretty decent list of things i liked about this movie the first is the premise and the setup of this premise it's just crackerjack intrigue. It's really fun and cool. He, oh, it's my murder. Oh, how did we get here? And it's kind of like a high concept thriller before the notion of high concept movies existed. It's just, it's really riveting and it's kind of grounded by this awesome opening shot of him walking through the police station, kind of this ominous path to the afterlife almost. It's it's just a cool premise for a film, and I'm glad that 
that someone thought of it, tried to tell this story. So I enjoyed it. I at least I enjoyed the setup of it and the yeah. A lot of places talked up that opening shot. Everywhere I read anything about this movie, they talked that up. It is a strong opening. It leaves you wanting to know how we got to this point. The look of it as he's walking down the hallway felt very like German expressionist, just like looming shadows. Yeah, agreed. Visually interesting. And to that point, I think there are plenty of scenes in this film that are really just exquisite noir cinematography and direction. The shootout at that industrial center, it's like modern life, bars and pipes clashing in at him. It's very evocative. I loved when he drove around too. I love the chase scenes, the shadows in the store that you talked about. There's just some really meaty and enjoyable visual stuff going on here. Mm, meaty visuals. <laughs> I also think that there's a lot of pleasure in the, the period stuff, the 1940s stuff. There's the dope-ass cars, Commander, the Studebaker Commander. It, it all looks cool. Everyone's always dressed up and wearing their fedoras and their hats. Nobody ever looks anything less than spiffy. Very well-groomed and adult and refined. And there's just something about like the, the feel and the look of the hotels, bars, the stores that just made it feel like a magical different time. It's almost like looking at a Norman Rockwell or Edward Hopper painting just makes you feel like you get sucked into this other place in this time. And this movie's got a lot of that. Yeah, there's this moment early on when the guy who invites Frank to the hotel party calls down to the front desk to have them bring up another bottle of bourbon. I'm sure that at like fancy hotels, you can probably still have them bring you up alcohol. But I got the sense that in this era, you could just do it at any hotel. <laughs> and they would come with a little tray with booze for your madman party. Yeah, exactly. Although one weird side effect of everybody looking so fancy is that I think they were like supposed to be young 20-somethings, mid-20-somethings, like the hot young people, but because they were all dressed up and they all were in 40s style attire, I can't help but thinking that they look like old people just out on the town, like not the hip young people. I'm glad you brought that up because Frank has got a pretty serious receding hairline to be getting so much action, <laughs> in my humble That's a good opinion. good point. Yeah, I, I did notice that, and he kind of is accentuated by the way his hair puffs up a little bit. Yeah, he's got like action figure Robbie Rotten hair. It's like very molded, plasticky hair. Another thing I enjoyed about this film, I really love the pace and the tone of the first half of the movie. Before we kind of get into all the the hard-boiled, this person was lying and having this affair with that person. When it was a little more simple and it was just kind of set up as Frank slithering into this seductive indulgence of san francisco and oh is he going to be loyal to paula or is he gonna pursue this wild lifestyle and everything that was going on there worked for me pretty well i i was having a fun time with it, including the uh the jive club i just thought it was so immersive and evocative the way that we got to see these jazz musicians and close-ups so sweaty there was just a decadence about the whole affair. I don't know. I enjoyed it. This first act of the movie and this tipping point we reach where he drinks the poison and wakes up and realizes what's happened 
felt like a classic horror movie setup. It was like, you know, Jonathan Harker goes to Transylvania to settle some legal documents and all of a sudden, oh, Dracula eats him. Or like the, the, the teenagers go to Texas and pick up a hitchhiker and then suddenly they're in the midst of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or uh, Hostel, you know, the backpackers in Europe. Okay, let's go have a sexy time. And then suddenly they're in a torture chamber. So it's the, you know, the classic setup of you're traveling somewhere. Or, or like in Psycho, she runs off with the money and then she's going to be on the lam. But oh, Norman Bates gets her. You go out with a destination in mind and suddenly you're in this new realm where bad things are going to happen. The weird thing is that he only decides to go to Los Angeles at basically the halfway point of the movie. So it's not strictly set up. It's like a full half of the movie where it's leading up to that. I agree with you definitely that it's like all paving the way for the core of the mystery and stuff. But the fact that it took up such a significant percentage almost made it feel like a a movie in miniature or something like that. I don't know. It's definitely a clear tonal change and it's like a clean break. It's you're exactly right that it definitely feels like a different movie. Yeah. After that point, there's also like brassy fanfare score going on that. I don't know. It distracted me a little bit. It is just like kind of over the top twilight zone music as he's running around panicking in the street. Interesting. Yeah. Um, another thing I enjoyed, I don't know if it was actually good. Like, it might have just been too hammy for the setting, the scene. But I just was having a good time whenever Chester was on the screen. Bug-eyed Chester, talking about bellies in the third person, ready to, to stab and shoot and kill whoever, but mainly Frank. I don't know. He was probably on screen for a total of three or four minutes, but like... It felt like a quarter of the movie, and I wanted a Chester spinoff. Yeah, we need Chester's big adventure. Chester's fabulous <laughs> adventure. <laughs> oh, are you going to bring in every single episode of The Goods? I'm working on it. My last point about things that I liked was, uh, I just think there's a symbolic resonance, sort of roundness to the premise of a man who is kind of dead walking. I don't know if this movie really dug into it, but I just found the premise so rich we're all heading towards our doom and some of the reason we're heading there is self-inflicted some of it is because we're victims of circumstance but i don't know i i just it's just a compelling premise and i kept thinking about it in different ways it could have gone and different comments on the human condition it could have made and i i just enjoyed thinking about it and having it there i mostly wanted to stay at this hotel and have somebody bring me a <laughs> bourbon on a tray yeah Bring me three bourbons and two scotches. That's the exact order he makes. Any other things you wanted to call out, Brian? It's very stylish. I liked the way they played with light. I've said it a couple times, but there's some distinctive shadows in this movie that were really drew your eye and were used with intention. And this was a public domain film that I had never seen before. Oh, that is a good. That's like a thumbs our, up. You know, Public domain. New window. Anybody can use this however they want for free. So it's accessible to all. And I always love that. To quote you, that's the only reason we're still reading Shakespeare is because it's in the public domain. Exactly. I'm ready to pivot to some complaints about the film. Some not so good things. Same. 
So I've alluded to this throughout. I do think there is a time and place for hard-boiled detective plot twisting with all the double crossings and... I've used the phrase, the motion of the plot. I don't know where I first heard that phrase, but I think it describes the distinct pleasure of a story like this, where there's always a double cross. There's always a betrayal or a secret, even if it's not exactly coherent. And yet, kind of feel like it didn't exactly work in this movie. I wanted to love it. I didn't. When the movie shifted its focus from Frank and his own scenario to Frank trying to figure out why this other guy was murdered. I don't know. The fact that Frank knew he was going to die added a little bit of tension to everything, but it was no longer like the point of the plot. It was no longer the driver of the plot. And to me, that was a little disappointing for a full second half of the film to not be about Frank, you know, the fact that he was about to die and the whole premise of it. Like it wasn't the point of it anymore. Yeah, again, he's got two days left, and now he's sinking time into this this other story. Although, I think the link is that if there's somebody going around poisoning people, you want to put a stop to that. And so if this, if this other guy is tied to the poisoning, it's like, figure out who the poisoner is and get that guy off the streets. Okay, that's a noble goal. That's true, yeah. When it makes that tonal shift and things start to get kind of confusing and convoluted, I still enjoyed it quite a bit particularly the set pieces, but I just felt like it lost steam and got kind of confusing. It's really jarring how much it changed, in fact. Like, all of a sudden, we go from having two characters we care about to 12 characters that we care about. And it's basically like a second detective movie plastered on top of the movie that we already have, but only in 40, 45 minutes of time, so it feels super rushed not only meet all these characters and but to also have them be lying and betraying what we already knew so i don't know yeah it's kind of a too many cooks thing we get a whole bunch of introductions then several of them are false it's like okay now you got to know about george reynolds but he's not really george reynolds he's raymond Rakubian, but he's (laughs) not really even here because he's dead right it's one of those after another and it's a lot but that is part of the charm, part of the point of a hard-boiled detective of a, of a film noir like this. I don't know. Right. Stuff, stuff like this is part and parcel of the whole noir <laughs> deal. Uh, yeah. I mean, in Chinatown, there's lots of things like this. You know, the daughter is secretly the sister or uh, reverse. It's like the sister is really the daughter. Yeah. But we can't do anything about it because it's Chinatown. The specific complaint I had here was that basically the opening, which I think is the most compelling and intriguing part of this film, sets up two mysteries. One, how was this guy already, quote unquote, murdered already? Why was he reporting his own murder? And second, how did the police station already know about it? Well, we get both of those questions answered before the halfway point. Well, he's dying because he got poisoned and... They know about it because the doctor called. And at that point, no revelation had as much impact as that, as those original ones, because I guess we're trying to figure out who's responsible. But the fact that we kind of knew the answer to the question that we were first presented with before the halfway point made the second half feel a little redundant and low impact. I guess I'm kind of restating the same thing over and over here, which is that 
I love parts of this movie and other parts of it I didn't love quite so much. So a big takeaway for me is I'm trying to figure out how so many things could happen in this movie and still leave me feeling bored. <laughs> I think I was just a little bit out of the loop. I was trying to play catch up throughout, trying to get a handle on what was happening. I've seen a few movies in this genre, subgenre, and they tend to leave me feeling stupid. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's not know. a good feeling. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel a little, a little bit alienated. And maybe you're supposed to feel alienated. It leaves you with a feeling of alienation about society. It's like it weirdly benefits you turning your brain off. I don't know. My last point of something I wanted to complain about. So from the, I don't know, about now, like the 40s, like I'd say after the, the war and the start of the baby boom, all these soldiers have PTSD and stuff. On through at least the 70s, let's say the 70s, there was a whole archetype of this weird image of a man, like this it's this gender-entrenched stuff where men were finally realizing and like articulating that it wasn't really healthy, the fact that they were supposed to be always be stoic. They were always supposed to be the strong one, who embraced suburban life as the cornerstone who could never be shaken even a little, could never emotionally re react to anything. They were always just their patriarch. And this concept started to get questioned and analyzed. And hey, maybe men should be able to express their own feelings and have doubts and vulnerabilities and express those. The problem is, for the first like 20 or 30 years of that, it basically came out as men should be able to live their inner bestial self and go and fuck whoever they want to fuck and drink whatever they want to drink and leave the woman that they love and go do those wild things because that's what their emotions are telling them to do. It's like the author John Updike has this whole series called The Rabbit Series it's like kind of honoring, depicting this guy whose name is Rabbit. The reason he's a rabbit is because he can never be caught. He's always escaping. He's always on the run. And it's kind of frustrating to see this. Like, I don't know. I consider myself someone who's fairly vulnerable and fairly able to articulate my emotions in this world. And the fact that like the whole impetus of this whole story is this doofus Frank like had this great thing going with this Hollywood sexy, beautiful secretary who wanted nothing more than to dote on him. And he reacts by running off to San Francisco. It just kind of pissed me off. And I was kind of tired of it from the start. I don't know. As for me, it's like country music. Everybody's just having too much sex for me to be able to relate to. <laughs> I relate much more to Scrooge. <laughs> I think you're now something like eight or nine out of 17 i'll get there previous episodes did you have any other thoughts that you wanted to add on something you didn't like about this movie something that bothered you i think i'm ready to stick a number value on this thing <laughs> all right before we get there i had one last you know i always like to bring one little twist into this oh yeah i gotta have some gimmicks yeah that's what makes a, a good episode separates separates the the men from the boys as far as our episodes are concerned <laughs> i have a proposed twist on this story here it is. So at the beginning of the movie when he's with Paula and she's ragging on him because he's got to go. Oh, he's got, 
does he really need to leave her and go away from her for a bit? And they go to this bar and I thought this bar scene was like weirdly long. Like they talk for a while and he goes and pays the bartender and then he comes back and she switches drinks. She moves her drink in front of him and then he drinks that. And I didn't think they were actually going to do it, but part of me wondered if there was going to be a crazy twist ending where what was the source of the poison? It was Paula in that very first scene. And she was a woman scorned because he was going to go and try and hook up with women in San Francisco. It was going to leave her to be the woman that he, he just couldn't settle down with. And although the gender politics would have been totally effed, it would have been a pretty wild twist if he had gone on this goose chase tracing down these mafiosos and all these conspiracies and stuff when really the thing that had done him in was Paula was his initial betrayal of her I thought that would have been a crazy twist ending and I was kind of hoping it was going to happen and then it didn't but what do you think of that yeah man especially if it still ended with his last words being about oh I love you Paula and he collapses and then she like pulls out the vial or whatever she poisoned him with that would have been a pretty intriguing twist that would have been a crazy twist ending in the line of that movie so that's my proposed rewrite of this movie is make Paula the murderer the one who who injected the poison and the weird thing is like when he goes to the doctor the doctor's like you've had it for at least 12 hours probably around when you were drinking alcohol but he was having beer in that bar when he was talking with Paula so Mm -hmm. could have worked And that was at least 12 hours ago. I will say there's a pretty large ensemble in this film. A lot of actors popping in and out. But one of the people that we see very briefly is a character actor. I think his name is something Katie. He played Sam Drucker, the general store clerk on Green Acres and Petticoat Junction. And he's in this as like a bartender Mm. but he still looks the same he's like 30 years younger than in those shows or 20 years younger but he's still bald oh that's fun and he has a very recognizable voice (laughs) he's just like a recognizable character actor very cool well i'm ready to move to our signature section is it good are you ready brian i am so is it good is where each of us rates this movie on an eight point scale Ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to a tour day good, eight out of eight. Brian, you're the guest. You get to rate first. Is DOA 1949 good? All right, listeners. So if you've been picking up on my tone tonight, I don't want to come off as phoning this one in. I was not 100% super engaged going through it. I am going to try to be objective and objectively the value i put on this i am going to say four good ish this is because they are trying something artistically here it is stylish they put in effort to spin a good yarn and it does follow the noir journey of this man trying to get to the bottom of something and really just as he goes exploring he finds more and more corruption so it delivers on that front but gosh darn i was confused (laughs) there was quite a few twists in this movie like i said kind of a too many cooks thing where characters get introduced there's very briefly 
an established way to understand who these characters are and how they're related. And then that's just immediately dashed apart because actually this is what's happening. And then it's on to the next vignette, the next little group of characters. And I always felt a step behind. So that definitely dragged it down for me. I think if I were going strictly on my own personal feelings, I might feel a little bit of spite. How dare this movie rush on and leave me behind? But I want to show it some respect. I think it was reasonably well-crafted. It gets a four from me. I appreciate that. So I'm kind of in a tough spot here because I came in feeling pretty confident that this was a low six. Very good. And as we've been talking through it, I feel like I've had more negative things than positive things to say, which makes me think that maybe a very good is not quite earned. I do think a film noir executed well is just fun cinema, like peak fun cinema. There's visual artistry. There is fun seedy stuff and twisty plots. And it's just a a wild romp. And this movie does have that. In fact, I think it has too much of it in the second half. To the point that it kind of detracts from it. I'm gonna bump down to a good. It's gonna be a high good for me today. I do think it's a lot of fun. I think it's a well-made movie. I agree with you. I'm already second-guessing myself. Okay, you know what? I'm sticking with my initial gut. Very good. This is just a classic noir. It's got noir stuff in it. And I'm not gonna hold that against it too much. When it's good, it's really good. When it's not good, it's kind of... Cheesy, hard-boiled story twisting, and I can't hold that against it too much. So, fun watch. I watched it twice. I enjoyed it both times. Yeah, DOA, 1949. So, now that we've rated the movies, I think we're about ready to close shop. But before we do, parting thoughts. Brian, do you have anything you want to share that you've been watching or thinking about or doing that's unrelated to this episode? Gearing up to do a gauntlet. It's kind of a continual thing for me, but this is going to be a collaboration with a college professor of mine. Dan's coming on the show, so keep an eye and an ear out for that, an episode of my public access show. Other than that, what have I been watching? I watched Narcos. I'm into the second season of that on Netflix. It's the story of Pablo Escobar. That's yeah. And, and <laughs> obviously watching things for the podcast we do we've been keeping up each week so i think that is very admirable agreed this was a lighter week but we've had quite our viewing assignment over the past month oh yes it was back to work so (laughs) good to not have 800 minutes of viewing this week 718 was two episodes ago exactly my parting thought is i wanted to share something i was proud of that my three-year-old daughter did mostly driven by me some assistance from my wife and my mother-in-law. So I'm a completionist, competitive asshole, and I love reading with my daughters. And I was like, what, what's a challenge I can do with my daughter to read picture books? So the American Award for Picture Books is called the Caldecott. And each year they choose a winner, and then they choose between two and four honor books, which are basically the, the runners-up. And since 1938 or 39, we've had 351 Caldecotts. And I managed to track down and read every single one of the 351 Caldecott honors and winners with my three-year-old daughter in 2020. 
if 2020 was nothing else good, it was the year that I read all the Caldecotts, my daughter, and I love doing it. And there's so much variety and just immense creative talent in these picture books that it was a journey. And I'm boasting about it now. So wow, that, congratulations. That was my, my big win for 2020. Yeah, I think at some point we've talked about it off pod. I think we got to do some episodes where we rank things like not just scenes from a movie or visual effects in house or whatever, but that we kind of break from format a little bit and just bring a, a slate of things to consideration. And, and one I, I would like to cover is like top five years of our lives or something. <laughs> that would be fun. We'll we'll brain, brainstorm on that. We'll noodle on that. That's a good idea. Yeah, we've got to spitball a little bit. All right, Brian, this has been a fun time. You too, Dan. It wound on a little longer than I maybe expected us talking about an 83 or perhaps 80 or perhaps 58 minute movie to be, but this has been a fun time and happy Thursday evening. And thanks for talking DOA 1949 with me. Always glad to talk to you and hope you enjoyed viewers. Join us next time, listeners, whatever frequency you're connecting with us on. <laughs> and now this episode is DOA. Hit it with the stamp. <laughs> this is Dan. And Brian. And have a good week, everyone.